The Alaska Powerline podcast is generously supported by GenPack. As a stocking electric utility distributor, GenPack has been taking care of customers in the Pacific Northwest since 1965. With a strong customer focus and dedicated sales staff, they have built lasting relationships by providing quality products with value-added services. Now with a new Anchorage warehouse and a dedicated Alaska sales and support team, GenPack is ready to take care of their Alaska customers for years to come. Visit them at www.genpack.com for more information. GenPack, taking care of our customers since 1965. Welcome to Alaska Powerline, the podcast of Alaska Power Association, the statewide trade association for electric utilities in Alaska. On Alaska Powerline, we talk about issues facing Alaska's electric utilities, interview a wide range of guests, and demystify what it takes to provide power in the last frontier. Welcome to episode two of the Alaska Powerline podcast. I'm Michael Rovito, Deputy Director of Alaska Power Association, and we're excited today to be joined by Brian Hickey, the Executive Director of Railbelt Regional Coordination. Brian, welcome to the podcast. Good morning, Michael. Thank you very much. Happy to be here. Great. Yeah, there's a lot going on in the rail belt, so we're excited to talk about it. But first, Brian, why don't you tell us a little bit about your history in the Alaska electric utility industry, and then talk about what you're doing in your uh, your current role. Sure, sure. I've, I've been working in the rail belt for 40 years, roughly. Uh, back, I, I came on board at Municipal Light and Power. Well, I worked construction, um, line construction in the rail belt prior to that, but in 1984, I came on board at the time we interconnected with Fairbanks and actually established the railroad interconnection at that point in time. And so I've worked in engineering and operations uh, most of my career and um, ended up being the chief operating officer at Chugach Electric. And I retired from there uh, in um, April of 2022. And I'm um, currently working for the CEOs of the five electric utilities and the director of the Energy Authority under the auspices of the Bradley Lake Project Management Committee. And that's a that's a, an organization that is a creature of the Bradley Lake Power Sales Agreement, but it's the only organization in the rail belt that has the five CEOs of the electric utilities and the director of the Energy Authority on it. So it's a convenient place for me to work. I report to um, the chair of that committee, and the chair rotates annually. This year, it's Brad Janorski, the CEO at Home, or general manager at Homer Electric. Um, and so I'm primarily working on getting funding and, and designs and estimates to build out the rail belt transmission grid to a level that will allow us to move um, meaningful amounts of power between the three regions. There are three regions in the rail belt grid, the southern region, which is the Kenai Peninsula, the central region, which is Anchorage, Matsu, going about as far north as Willow, and then the northern region, uh, which is the Fairbanks uh, Delta Junction area. So that's what I'm working on right now. It's pretty exciting. There's a lot of um, there's a lot of federal activity through the Department of Energy uh, and interest in building out grid resiliency. And I think we also have quite a bit of interest here in the state, uh, both at the legislative and executive branch levels. So a lot going on. Yeah, it seems like uh, you're you're a busy guy with all of this. Now, you talked about uh, the transmission system and, you know, folks, when they're driving around or walking around, they see all the power lines going to and fro above them. And there's a difference between transmission and distribution. But can you just talk a little bit about that from a basic standpoint? I mean, what is a transmission system compared to the distribution system and what are the differences? 
Sure. A transmission system is a network of high voltage power lines and substations that transport what we call bulk electricity over long distances from remote power plants to local distribution areas, to the local load centers or distribution system. Um, it's a it's a network. Um, it's also interestingly, and I think a lot of people don't understand this, a, a an interconnected transmission system with generators is a single machine. And it, it they are the largest single machines created by mankind. Um, for example, in the United States, there are three interconnections in the lower 48, contiguous lower 48. There's the Eastern interconnection, the Western interconnection, and the Electric Reliability Council of Texas. All three of those areas operate in perfect synchronous. All the machines in those areas operate in perfect synchronism all the time. In the rail belt, we have a fairly small grid that runs from uh, Bradley Lake down on the Kenai Peninsula to Fairbanks and Delta Junction. Um, but but the transmission system is moving that bulk power. Distribution systems are at lower voltages. And the reason we raise the voltage on transmission system is because um, you can move larger amounts of power with smaller wires. And the wire is a big cost co component in the in the in the construction of a of a transmission line distribution systems are those lower voltage lines that you see in your backyard or the green boxes and the underground cables that you see in your in your um in your in your yard or along your street and so the bulk power transmission system moves the energy to substations and then we split it out and send it out into the distribution systems from there Okay, so pretty important uh, discrepancy. But how, as I understand it, um, in the low 48, and I think in Alaska in some ways, the transmission systems are aging. They're, they're getting pretty old. Is that right? And are, I mean, they're, how long have they been around? Yeah, sure. You know, particularly in the in the lower 48, I think they go from the early 1900s until there have been newer ones built in the um, in in recent years. But there there were sort of some large, uh, what I'd say. Uh, spurts of transmission system growth one was right before world war ii a lot the the the, the factories and 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 um or during world war ii the factories and 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 um um people the folks who had to build out all those weapons and stuff for the second world war that created a lot of transmission interconnection where utilities had to come together and pool their power so they could have big factories to that stuff there was another big build out in the 70s and then uh, after first order 2000 uh, you've seen a lot of, there's been quite a bit of transmission construction in lower 48. The rail belt is somewhat different than that. Uh, most of the transmission lines in the rail belt, uh, in the rail belt were built early on, early on in the fifties and sixties. And then later in the eighties, uh, seven, late seventies, when the pipeline construction was going on. And since then, there's been very little construction, um, of transmission since the, I'd say since 1980 or so, 85, um, in 85, we built the intertie to Fairbanks and, and the interconnected Fairbanks and Anchorage. But after that, there has been very little. There was a second line built between Healy and, and, and Fairbanks in the early 2000s and a couple small lines um, in the Anchorage in the central region. So that's sort of the, the status of how old the transmission lines are. So kind of going on 40 years plus, actually, since the last significant upgrade, I guess. Yeah, and I think I think one thing that's important is the early early on, the transmission systems, both in the lower forty eight and in the, and and in Alaska, were not built to move bulk power between regions. They were built for two purposes. Either they were single purpose lines that delivered the power from say the Eklutna hydroelectric project into Anchorage or the line down to the Kenai, the one that you see when you drive down by Girdwood, that was constructed to deliver Cooper Lake 
hydroelectric energy into Anchorage, which was a fairly small amount of power. Um, that line, for example, coming in from the Kenai was designed to move about 40 megawatts. And we've done some upgrades to it, so it'll move 75, but it's stretched pretty tight. The other purpose for building transmission lines is for what we call reserve sharing. It's a very simple concept, but if you have two towns and they each build a generator to serve their load, say a 50 megawatt generator in each town, well, when they take their generator down for maintenance, they have to have built a second 50 megawatt generator. But if you put it, and so each town would build a second 50 megawatt generator. But if you put a transmission line between them, they only have to build one 50 megawatt generator and they can share it. And so that's called reserve sharing. And so most transmission systems in the lower 48 and to some degree between Anchorage and Fairbanks were designed and built for this reserve sharing pool. So what we're asking them to do now is move large quantities of power. That's going to require more lines and heavier transmission lines. Yeah, and it seems like I've heard a lot about the uh, the redundancy as well. I, I think back to the 2018 earthquake when, you know, in the Matsu, I know that uh, some of the power plants were tripped offline because of the shaking. But then, if I remember correctly, I think power from other parts of the region were able to be shipped in to, to the Matsu essentially over the transmission system to kind of shore it up as, as best they can. Is that right? Yeah, absolutely. Um, the the 2018 earthquake was um, was was a we it was a very uh, we were very fortunate during that earthquake because we have a fairly um uh stringy and and not very robust transmission system and the shaking stopped before everything fell down we actually during that during that uh during that earthquake point mckenzie substation which is one of the largest switching station in the central region was completely taken offline um and it was out of service for almost a year bypassed as we had to rebuild a lot of the bus work and stuff over there um we were fortunate that the few lines that come in and out of there didn't fall down because without them it would have been quite some time before we could restore power another example of the challenges we have is in the the swan lake fire and i believe that was 2019 mm -hmm. um where the northern region, everyone north of uh, of Sterling or of of Cooper Landing, was isol islanded from the Bradley Lake hydroelectric project, which is a um, one of the lowest cost sources of power in the rail belt. Um, being islanded from that, we had to run um, gas turbines on the north end up here, burn fuel that we wouldn't otherwise have burned, which cost millions of dollars. The, the line was out of service for I think eight or nine weeks that summer. And it was a challenge from a capacity perspective because it was a very hot summer and gas turbine uh, capacities dropped significantly in high temperatures. And so we were bumping up against capacity limits. And so having a robust transmission system is critical from a reliability and resiliency standpoint. So now we're we're here in 2023, and you know, as you mentioned uh, a, a couple of minutes ago, it's been a long time since there's been really a, a massive uh, upgrade to the transmission system. And since that time, you know, technology has um, um, come a long way. There's new uh, sources of generation that we can take advantage of. The population has changed in the rail belt. So talk a little bit about what you're working on and how it's it's aimed to um, upgrade the rail belt electric grid, so to speak, and, and what advantages it will have. Yeah, sure. Um, and some some of my counterparts, I don't particularly like this analogy, but when we call it a grid, some people call it a long extension cord that runs from from Bradley <laughs> Lake to Fairbanks and over to Delta Junction. But uh, um, what we're working on right now, and I think the underlying this, the importance of building out the transmission grid is that 
irrespective of what the future generation suite looks like, whether it's um, wind, solar, nuclear, hydro, um, if it's going to be different than what we have today, and it's going to be because, um, you know, we have the challenges around Cook Inlet natural gas deliverability um, that we've become aware of, um, as well as um, the, I think, socioeconomic movement to a decarbonized electric grid um, so that we're, you know, emitting less carbon. If we're moving to that, you're going to have to be able to move bulk power between the three regions in the rail belt. One of the primary reasons for that is, let me give you an example. If you wanted to build a large wind farm, say in the domes north of Fairbanks, um, and you want to make that you want to make that project as big as possible because of the from a megawatt capacity standpoint, because the the larger it is, the economies of scale drive the per unit cost per kilowatt hour down. For that to happen, the utilities in the central region and the Kenai Peninsula will have to be able to participate in that. Golden Valley, the utility north of the range up there in Fairbanks, doesn't have enough load to size that up um, significantly. But for the utilities down here to participate in a project like that, there's going to have to be a second line, and the two lines are going to have to be able to move enough power so that the folks um, in the southern region can actually get their power out of that uh, out of that wind farm up north. Um, and right now, the transmission system, both between the Kenai Peninsula and Anchorage, or the central region, Anchorage Matsu, and between the Anchorage Matsu region and Fairbanks, is limited to about 10% of our peak load. So our peak load is about 750 megawatts. We can move about 75 megawatts off the Kenai, and we can move about 75 megawatts to Fairbanks and back in the other direction as well. Uh, if you wanted to go Fairbanks to Anchorage, so or to the central region and southern, so both between the Kenai and the central region, the central region of Fairbanks, we're going to have to build a second inner tie. Right now, there's just a single inner tie, and um, when you sign up for power, most power power contracts of that nature are what are called take or pay. I'm not sure if the reader, the folks are familiar with that, but what it means is you pay for the power whether you get it or not. You know, you you just pay the bill on the on the facility that's making the power. And if you get the power, that's good. And if not, you don't. If you only have a single transmission line, anytime that line is out of service, whether it's scheduled or unscheduled, um, you're not able to access that power and you're paying for something you're not getting. So for folks to sign up for those firm take or pay power contracts, they're going to require that you have at least two lines and the lines have to have sufficient capacity to move whatever that generation is to the location it needs to be moved to. So it seems like a first things first type of situation. I mean, before you can really build um, you know, large scale uh, generation, whether, like you said, whether it be wind, solar, or or micronuclear, for instance, you have to be able to move that power somewhere or else it's just, it doesn't work correctly. And, you know, we, we've seen some of these smaller projects pop up right now, but definitely not enough to, um, I guess, cover the power needs of the entire rail belt currently, correct? Yeah, you know, the, I think there's a lot of work going on. The utilities are um, working hard to bring um, renewable and low carbon generation online. I know there's three or four projects under consideration right now. And I also know that any one of those projects would be significantly enhanced if you could get larger participation in it, if you could um, bring all the folks together. But to your point, first things first, you have to get the transmission grid built out so that you can actually move the power in a resilient manner. And by resiliency, I mean you know, you, one line doesn't take it out of service so you don't get your power. 
um, you have to be able to do that before your people are going to be able to participate in those. Yeah, that's a good point. And I know all of APA's electric utility members, you know, are looking into generation diversification for various reasons, whether it be carbon reduction or just energy security as well. So you're not getting your uh, your power from one source. And I think that's becoming um, quite a large part of the mission, right? About diversifying where that energy is coming from, where you how you're generating your electricity, so you're not relying on just one source, right? Absolutely. You know, I mean, there's no question that we're over relying on cooking the natural gas in the rail belt. I mean, we have been, it's been a great, um, we've saved a lot of money um, over the years having low cost natural gas. But, you know, the, the cooking lit field was discovered in 1957. I think oil production peaked in 1973. And we've sort of been, you know, drawn out the what's left of that field for a long time. But we've been heavily dependent on that. And we ship a fair amount of power north to Golden Valley. Um, we call it economy energy. It's non-firm um, over the inner tie. Um, but uh, um, because because the cost of natural gas in Coquitlam is so much less expensive than the cost of oil out of the pipeline, which is what they would burn otherwise up there. But um, yeah, uh, from a for a fuel diverse future, one of the underpinnings of that is going to have to be a robust transmission grid because many of these types of um, projects are geographically dependent. You know, there's potentially there's wind in the Caribou Hills down on the Kenai or or west of Mount Susitna in the central region or north of the domes in Fairbanks. Um, those are all that's where the wind is. So you got to get it there and move it to where you need it. <clears throat> yeah, I've read of this challenge um, taking place in the low 48 as well, where large-scale renewables could be are, are generally in the low 48 in places away from the population centers and so you have to get that power to the population centers from the, you know the oftentimes remote places that that generation is um, is sited in right yeah absolutely it, you know it, this 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 um, uh, challenge isn't unique to Alaska it's it's common to to the all, all three of the grids in the lower 48, um, particularly the Western interconnection, you know, the Eastern inter interconnection, which is sort of uh, north, east of North Dakota and, and, and kind of Texas, that, that's fairly heavily interconnected over there. The West, the West is less interconnected, more like Alaska as is, as is ERCOT. But uh, yeah, Bill Gates had a great article out. If I could find the link to it, I would send it to you on, on the need to build transmission. And he's talking about regionally, you know, in the in the in the contiguous lower 48 states, the need to build transmission if you're going to move to a more fuel diverse future, more sustainable and fuel diverse future. Yeah, it's it's a fascinating um, conundrum. I think that I know a lot of people are working on, including yourself. And so let's talk a little bit. Of course, all this costs money, and a lot of money, as I understand it. And I know you have been kind of deep into the uh, the federal grant opportunities side of things. I, I think also sacrificing your Christmas holiday, I believe, <laughs> to get this done. So talk a little bit about, you know, wh how how are we going to pay for this? Or what are you doing to pursue um, funding and a way to pay for all this? And how much does it cost? Is there an estimate? Sure. Um, so in September of 2022, Governor Dunleavy challenged the CEOs and the director of the Energy Authority to uh, come up with a plan and tell them what it would cost to decongest the rail belt. So uh, we scurried off and 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 did that. Um, we we've arrived at a number that's you know about 2.9 billion dollars, and that's probably over 15 years. It's you know it's a it's a law. It will take quite some time to fully build out the transmission grid, um, and so. 
we believe that this has to be a state plan that that type of uh, that the, an effort of that magnitude is beyond the financial capabilities of the rail belt utilities without significant rate increases, which would be unacceptable. So so it's going to require some intervention by the state first and then hopefully by the federal government as well. Um, and we've 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 been working both both sides of that um, on the federal side. There are um, the through the bipartisan infrastructure law, which is also known as the Investment and Infrastructure Jobs Act, the IIJA. Um, Department of Energy has about $10.8 billion to spend on grid uh, grid upgrades. Um, that's being funneled through the Department of Energy. And the Department of Energy is put out putting out a number of what they call funding opportunity announcements. We call them FOAs. And uh, the one that I'm working on right now is called the Grid Innovation, uh, Grid Resiliency and Innovation Partnership Funding, Oper now, funding Opportunity Announcement. So from now on, I'll refer to it as GRIP. It's the GRIP FOA, G-R-I-P FOA. Yeah. Um, but the GRIP FOA um, has three topics under it. Um, one is grid resiliency. That's topic one. Topic two is smart grid. And topic three is grid innovation. Um, and in on uh, November 18th, they put out the, the the final funding opportunity announcement, and they wanted they required that you submit concept papers for each topic that you were interested in by December sixteenth, and that's how we got to me spending my Christmas Thanksgiving and Christmas vacation working on it. <laughs> we managed to pull together uh, the group came together, and certainly wasn't me. I, I had a great team I was working with, folks from Golden Valley and 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 Chugach and uh, Matanuska and Homer and Seward. But we came together and wrote two concept papers between November 18th and December 16th, submitted them. And then the third concept paper on topic three was due on January 13th. So that's where my Christmas and New Year's vacation went. And uh, um, <laughs> we submitted it timely. And fortunately, uh, we've been selected under each of the three concept papers to submit a full application. And so we're now working on those full applications. Um, topic two which is the smart grid um, application was due on March 17th, and we submitted a, a project there. That project will be a, an integrated control system that can control uh, the three battery energy storage systems, one which is installed, one which is being procured right now, and the other is in sizing and design. One's in the Kenai, one's in the central region, one's in Fairbanks. It will control those three battery systems and the proposed high-voltage DC submarine cable that runs from Nikiski, would run from Nikiski to Beluga in a coordinated fashion and allow us to um, burn less fuel and emit less carbon by minimizing our reserves that we carry at any given time, as well as increased transfer capability between the, the three regions. Um, topic one is due... Well, it's due next Thursday. We intend to submit it Tuesday, um, next Tuesday of next week. That's grid resiliency. And that is rebuilding, uh, from our perspective, we will be submitting projects to rebuild the backbone transmission system that goes from uh, Bradley Lake uh, all the way up to Fairbanks and around to Delta Junction. Um, and then the third topic paper is due May 19th. And that's really the big one. And that we will be submitting in there for financial assistance to construct the two battery systems that are not yet completed, as well as to construct the the, the, the line from Soldatna to the Nikiski terminal and the HVDC line across Cook Inlet to Beluga. In this funding cycle, it's important to note there are four funding cycles 
in this um, grip FOA. Uh, the 22-23 one, and then there's a 24, 25, and 26. So we intend to submit applications during each of the four funding cycles. But the projects I just outlined are what we're submitting for in this first funding cycle. Now, do the federal funds, if if you're successful in getting them, is there a, a match that's required from, from your side, from the utility side, essentially, or the state side? Absolutely. There's, there's, uh, and it's different uh, on the, on the, Topic one, grid resiliency, the funding, um, the uh, maximum allowable grant is the lesser of $100 million or your three-year average spend on grid resiliency. So okay. we're totaling that number up right now to understand where we would come out on that. That has a 30% match requirement. And 30% of those funds are reserved for small utilities, which we believe we qualify as a small as small utilities. So um so that's the topic one. In topic two, the maximum grant is $30 million, and um, we're looking for a $16 million grant, and that requires a 50% match. So um, our project is about $30 million, 29 something, and we would ask for half of that from the feds. And then we will be going to the state and looking for them to help us with the matching funds, uh, which in that case are 50%. In topic three, it's also a 50% match situation. And the maximum grant there is $250 million for individual regions, a billion dollars for multiple regions. We believe we, we meet the multiple region definition. And so we'll be looking for something in excess of of the of the of the two hundred and fifty million dollars as a grant application under the under topic three, which is due May nineteenth. Okay, you mentioned um, looking toward the state, and I guess through the appropriations process, essentially the state legislature, with support of the governor, force these some of these matching funds. Because as I understand it, it's 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 a significant amount of money to put on the ratepayers in in. Um, the rail belt, which, by the way, we should mention that the rail belt is powered by um, not-for-profit electric cooperatives and one municipal utility down in Seward. So I guess how, how is that process going to hopefully play out? Yeah, absolutely. You know, I mean, these the figures uh, of this magnitude are beyond the capabilities of the rail belt utilities without significant rate increases, which I think are unaccept would be unacceptable. So we're going to have to have federal and state, state and then federal help. Um, the way that plays out is if we are selected right now, we we are filing applications and these this is a competitive grant process. And, you know, it's important to do some expectation setting, I think, with respect to that, because the grants are competitive. For example, on the at the concept paper level back during December and January, 700 concept papers were submitted oh. for these three topic areas. Uh, for example, on topic one, grid resiliency, there were 289 concept papers submitted. 144 people or 144 entities were asked to move to the next step and submit an application. So on our topic one, we're competing with 144 other folks uh, for for this money. And there's only going to be in that area, they anticipate 10 awards, mm -hmm. right? So there's 144 people, 10 awards. You can see that, you know, this is not a sure thing by any means, but, but we're doing everything we can to get that. Um, once, if we're selected under topic one, two, or three, we then would be... Um, we would be notified in the summer of, of on topics one and two will be notified in the summer of 2023 and a topic three in the fall. And then we go into a grant negotiation phase. So at that point in time, we would understand 
what our actual grant was and what the required match was and how the utilities could participate in that. And at that point in time, during that next legislative session, you know, we will be, well, in the budget formation process with the executive branch and in the legislative session, we'll be working through Curtis Thayer at AEA, who's a partner and been a great, been a great partner in this process. He will be helping us navigate that side of things. Okay. Yeah, we like to think Alaska is the center of the universe here. So hopefully the uh, the folks evaluating the uh, grant applications also think that. We'll keep our, our fingers crossed. That's Brian, my story have, and I'm sticking to it. That, that's right. That's right. We just have a few minutes left. And so I want to talk about a little bit, you know, you mentioned it um, a few minutes ago or a couple topics ago about the kind of this being a 15-year plan. And that really sparked a question in my mind. If, if things were to go as you want them to go and as we all in the robot want them to go, I mean, what what kind of processes have to take place? Because obviously there's the financial aspect, but then there's permitting, there's there's material pr- procurement, there's workforce. I mean, what, what are kind of the challenges in that or, or how is that going to be approached? Well, you know what, I think I think you've hit the nail on the head and we've identified it in our applications that, you know, there are there are going to be challenges from from a first permitting. Uh, although some of these, you know, the topic one projects are rebuilding existing transmission lines. So generally the permitting requirements are are, are less in that area. Um, but building something like a HVDC cable across Cook Inlet has a lot of challenges. You know, beluga whales, there's cathodic protection for other pipelines, there's tides. And, you know, there's just a whole raft of things you're going to have to work through the permitting process on. So we do think that, you know, we think that we would initiate well, let me say that the permitting process is going to be um, challenging, but it's not something we can't overcome. We've done a lot of it over the years. We know how to do that process. Um, the the GRIP proposal, the the GRIP FOA also has a a, a large um, a large component of your application revolves around a community benefit plan and stakeholder outreach and uh, what they call the Justice 40 initiative, which is a Biden administration initiative that uh, wants to have energy equity. And so that the value of the money that they're putting into the into the various transmission grids throughout the country, 40% of it should flow to disadvantaged communities. So, and we have many of those in Alaska and on the rail belt. Um, but but there's a whole there's a whole outreach uh, portion of this that has to go there. And then you have the basic stuff that everybody's aware of at this time. You know, we have supply chain issues, uh, procurement. You know, I know the utilities are are procuring distribution transformers that are three years out. You know, you used to buy your transformers the year before you put them in, but just with the supply chain issues, they're having to procure them, you know, way out in the future right now. So so there'll be some challenges there. I think from a workforce perspective, um, I think it'll be great for the state because it'll create um, many jobs over a long period of time and it'll bolster what, what's been a, I think in the last 10 years, sort of a declining workforce. You know, the in the in particularly in the rail belt, we had a lot of folks who came here during the pipeline and most of those guys who are who are linemen and technicians and power plant operators, all that stuff were sort of timing out from a career standpoint. And so this would help us kind of revitalize that workforce, which, which I think is critical for, you know, for the success of the rail belt and particularly you know, as we move into this uh, more fuel diverse and potentially decarbonized future where, you know, beneficial electrification, where where you're putting EVs on on, on the distribution, you know, your vehicles are now being charged off the distribution system are going to require huge upgrades in generation and transmission. If, if there are massive shifts from, you know, from fossil fuel vehicles to electric vehicles and from, you know, boilers to heat pumps. So there's a there's a need for us to get ready. And I think this is a this is 
this this is an opportunity. It's a once in a generation opportunity for us to to um, to actually both build out the transmission grid and have a great effect on the um, a, a put out a lot of benefit to the communities and and uh, and and enhance our workforce, our skilled workforce. Yeah, it's all very very exciting, especially for myself. You know, with a family here and 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 I live in Palmer, and you know we want to be here for a long long time. So it's really exciting. Brian, we have just one minute left. So in one minute, I wanted to ask, you've been around the industry a long time and you've seen it go through a lot of changes. Um, what do you think about the future? Are you optimistic about the future of electric utility industry and, and what's going on? I am. I, th I think, uh, you know, we've got a lot of bright young people coming up in the organizations and um, I think there's so much opportunity out here right now as the world's changing, you know, as we move to this decarbonized future, um, you know, Things that we wouldn't even have considered 10 years ago are now sort of commonplace. You know, we're going to put in battery energy storage systems, you know, and 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 uh, large scale solar and wind farms. So I, I think it's exciting. Um, and I think uh, I think we've got the people to do it. Um, I think obviously it's going to be challenging, but that that's what makes life interesting. So I'm excited. Yeah, I would agree. Definitely. Well, Brian, thanks a lot for coming on the podcast, Dave. I really appreciate it. Yeah, thank you. It was, it was great. Appreciate it. Take care. Yeah, we've been talking to Brian Hickey, the Executive Director of Railbelt Regional Coordination, about some exciting things happening in the Railbelt. This has been the Alaska Powerline Podcast. I'm Michael Ravito, Deputy Director of Alaska Power Association, and we'll see you on the next episode.